This is where the industry insiders come to play. The download on the download. Movers and shakers off the course and the pros inside the ropes. Welcome to Slice with Brian Bushlack. Presented by True Spec Golf. Save 50% on your custom club fitting experience with the promo code SLICE50. Visit TrueSpecGolf.com and click on Book Now. And we open season three with one of the rock stars of golf course design, a man who needs no introduction, but will tee it up for you anyway. David McClay Kidd, who made Mike Kaiser's dream a reality, giving us band and dunes over 20 years ago. And the rest is history. No need to rehash Bandon, but we can't not talk about it. It's been well documented. And by the way, if you haven't read Dream Golf by Stephen Goodwin, well, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy. We'll focus more on David Kidd's work, maybe a course or two that you haven't heard of, why Tethero is so challenging, and why Gamble Sands is so fun. And in part two of our conversation, his personal favorite, a course you've likely never heard of. But for now, though, we'll open with that Scottish-American voice that lures us back to Bandon Dunes. Between the swings, we immerse ourselves in the traditions of a timeless game. Surrounded by untamed shores, ever-shifting sand dunes, and marvel at Mother Nature's wonders. Paired with those we cherish, walking, searching, the soul of the game. This is Band of Dunes. This is golf as it was meant to be. Okay, sir, well, if this uh, golf design thing doesn't work out for you, I think you could probably make it as a voiceover artist after seeing and hearing that commercial for Band and Dunes. You did a phenomenal job. That must have been pretty fun, huh? Thank you very much. Yeah, my, my accent is, uh, is my greatest asset. Uh, everyone in America thinks I sound like a Scot and everyone in Scotland thinks I sound American. So my accent is uh, confused. It's uh, I tell people it's rowing a boat slowly from Ireland to America and it hasn't quite gotten all the way there yet. <laughs> What's it like, honestly, you know, 20 years later, you know, you think back to where, where you were 20 years ago, where you are now, and then you know, this commercial and, and how far everything has come there. I mean, I remember Bandon when I was a kid camping there. So, I mean, what's it like? Do you ever stop and just go, man, kind of pinch yourself? Uh, I think last summer, even in the midst of the pandemic, uh, I was one of a small handful of spectators for the U.S. Amateur. And I'm wandering around watching the best amateur players on the world playing on TV on a golf course that I dreamt up every single thing that's out there. Every bump, every roll, every bunker, every putt, you know, I touched, I, I dreamt up, I, uh, you know, ha I had influence on all of that. That was definitely a pinch you moment where you think, holy craps, I, you know, I've, I've made some kind of impact on this great game that will probably last for many generations beyond my demise. Yeah, it's got to be a cool feeling. I got to ask you, what did you want to be 
when you grew up. And you can't say I wanted to be a golf course designer because, I mean, really, truthfully. You, nobody, yeah, nobody does what that. What was it? What did you want to uh, be? You know, I, I when I was very young, you know, 10 or less, my dad was a, uh, a hard a charging golf course superintendent in Scotland. And there was a small group of Scottish superintendents, uh, Walter Woods at St Andrews, uh, George Brown at Turnbury, uh, Chris Kennedy at a course in Glasgow. These were the young Turks of golf course maintenance in Scotland in the 70s. And these guys had huge ambition and they wanted to educate themselves. They wanted a platform to improve the quality of golf courses for their members and guests. And my father was probably the youngest of that group. Uh, and I idolized him then and now. Uh, and I, I thought, I want to be my dad. He's my role model. I, I want to be like him. I want to be in golf courses. I want to be in maintenance. I, I like playing golf. I'm not good enough to make that my career, but I love the outdoors. I love the complexity of horticulture and grass science and soil science and weather and the history of the game and all these things were super cool. So I spent uh, my sort of adolescent years working as a grunt on the golf courses he was in charge of. I was mowing grass and filling, uh, mowing uh, the grass, raking bunkers, filling divots, uh, doing winter projects, moving a tee or rebuilding something. And I loved it all. So I went to college to study that. And in my intern year, it, it was pretty obvious I would go intern at one of the well-known golf clubs in England. So I would go to Sunningdale or Royal St. George's. or, And my dad said, you know, you've spent your whole life working on golf courses to this point. Why don't you take this internship and do something slightly different? I'm friends with name drop Jack Nicholas. Why don't I give Jack a call and see if I can get you to intern on one of the construction projects that he's doing? And so that led me into construction in my intern year from college. And I thought, now this is fun. I'm pushing dirt around. I'm big yellow pieces of equipment, putting big, huge pipes in the ground and complex irrigation systems and bridges over rivers and all manner of stuff that was, frankly, way more interesting than it was when I'd been a lowly greenkeeper, you know, a grade one <laughs> greenkeeper told to go rake all the bunkers again uh, and make sure they're done by breakfast. So that really lit a fire that I thought golf course construction was a really, really good fun. It was all of the things I loved about golf without the routine uh, of golf. You know, there was a star, a middle, and then a definite end where the thing was completed and finished. And I got to stand back and look at it and then move to another thing. And I, I really wasn't that, I didn't really want to uh, take a single golf course and make it the best I could ever make it and then keep it that way for 30 years. That, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So then I figured out that the, there was only one downside to golf course uh, construction. And that was the golf course architect. This guy would fly in from who knows where with uh, usually with Gucci loafers on uh, and press pants and dressed like a golfer ready for the first tee. I'm embellishing greatly here uh, and come up with ideas that I'd been out there for weeks or months and knew that these ideas 
no matter how good they seemed, were going to be difficult to do. I, I couldn't, I didn't have the resources. I couldn't drain it. Uh, it was going to cause all sorts of maintenance problems down the road and you know, all sorts of other things that I could see. Uh, even if it was a good golf idea, it might not be a great idea from a, a, a holistic point of view. And so I realized if I really want to have fun building golf courses, I have to be the architect. I have to be the one dreaming it up because now I can think up all of the things that make a golf course a uh, economic, sustainable, a uh, uh, fun, beautiful to look at, uh, environmentally uh, conscious to some extent, minimalist to some extent. I could do all that if I were the architect. I couldn't do it if I were just the builder. I would always be uh, at the whim of whoever that guy in the Gucci loafers was. So I bought myself some Gucci loafers. No, I've never ever had <laughs> Gucci loafers. I bought myself some hiking boots and I came to America where suddenly a Scottish accent means that people will listen to you uh, about all things golf. And uh, and Mike Kaiser hired me in the early 90s at 26 years old to create Bandon. And uh, that gave me this giant platform once it was created. And in my own head, I knew the whole thing was a bloody fluke. So I was desperately keen to make sure that uh, the next one was just as good as Band and Dunes. And so I went on and built, you know, Nanea in Hawaii, which is in the US top 100, uh, Queenwood in England, which is highly rated, although private. So there were a number of courses that I worked even harder than I worked at Bandon to prove to myself and others that it hadn't been the complete fluke that it really was. Well, it's one thing to run a backhoe or a tractor or whatever, but that design piece. So did that come from, I mean, you've had the DNA, you walked, you know, millions of miles on golf courses. So, I mean, you knew kind of the lay of the land and the contour and what worked and what didn't and what you would do in a certain situation. But I mean, so there's a certain amount of DNA involved here, but then there's that experience. Where did the design piece come in from you? I mean, are you a creative type to begin with? Did you have to work on that? Kind of how, how did that happen? Well, I think my dad, his, you know, my whole childhood was totally into design. He was studying these old courses from the 1800s uh, prior to the golden age here in America. You know, we were old Tom Morris, uh, James Braid, uh, Colt, Varden, uh, all mm -hmm. these designers from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. My dad was enamored with it all. He was searching uh, attics at old golf courses and old bookstores when it wasn't uh, as fashionable and he was picking up all of these books and old clubs and balls. I mean, he has a pretty good collection of stuff that, that no one's ever seen but me uh, that hopefully one day I'll get. And so <laughs> I was seeing all this. He was looking at these old ordnance survey maps that the, the British military drew that had bunkering at Glen Eagles, for instance, that had been lost during the wars. And he's like, well, that, that's what James Braid originally built but there's no pictures of it. There's no aerial photographs of it, but that's obviously what it was. So he'd go back out and he'd dig around and he'd figure it out. And then we'd rebuild it the way it used to be. And all of this was, as you say, in my DNA. So when I built Bandon, I, I think I built Bandon purely from instinct. 
I, I don't think I broke it down and intellectualized it and understood even that in any great detail. I, I just knew from a lifetime in and around golf what would work and what wouldn't work. Uh, and that that was a huge blessing, but also a bit of an Achilles heel because as Bandon opened up opportunities that were, you know, bigger in terms of the scale of the project, you know, billion dollar housing developments, I didn't really have the technical knowledge. Uh, and so I, I, I probably struggled for a little while trying to play catch up, understanding what it was people thought I knew that I really didn't know. Uh, and it took me another, you know, I got this, you know, it's a bit like, I mean, a, an actor that wins an Oscar with his first movie and then all of a sudden gets all these other roles and you're like, holy crap, so I, I, I still need to learn. I've got so much more to learn. But now you're doing it in the full spotlight. Everybody's looking at what you do next. And so I think I was fairly smart. I realized where my weaknesses were and I surrounded myself with really talented people. Uh, and so the team that I was able to assemble right after Bandon, I had a half a dozen key collaborators, some of whom are still with me, uh, who really did understand stuff I didn't. And I kept them close. So between <laughs> my instincts and DNA and their sort of professional knowledge, we had this symbiotic relationship. They learned from me, I learned from them. And over about a decade after Bandon, we built a bunch of golf courses uh, that were pretty well uh, ranked. Uh, and I think that got me through. Yeah, you talk about that. Is there anything you would take a mulligan on if you could get it? Sure, of course. Uh, I'd take a mulligan on a few different things, but I, I don't think I'd take a mulligan on the whole round. Yeah, right. I might take a mulligan on uh, a particular course I did. In hindsight, I might do it a little differently, but I don't think there's a project I regret doing uh, or, or a concept I wholly regret. I mean, everything. Some of the courses, you know, the Castle Course at St Andrews, I kind of got a lot of flack for. Uh, but even then, I still don't really regret it. Uh, I I was given a site that was devoid of interest, uh, and I built something that sparked a lot of controversy. Uh, I knew the opposite to that, taking a site with no interest and creating a site where no one had any opinion. That, that doesn't work. No, that's not a good so, formula. No. No. So uh, I, I actively sought that controversy and I got exactly what I asked for. It was maybe a little bit of a shock, uh, but I, I intended to create controversy where there was none. It's hard to create something controversial from 220 acres of potato field. And I created controversy. So in my book, that means you know, I'm relevant. I'm doing stuff that sparks conversation and debate. Yeah. And in the world of golf, Golfers love to debate. Uh, I, I'd hate it if four golfers came off a course I created and said, ah, it's okay. You know, it's okay. I mean, that would be the worst thing in the world. Uh, if two of them said it was the best thing they'd ever played and two of them said it was the worst, I'd prefer that over four of them saying, meh. And that often happened in the early years at Tethero, didn't it? I mean, I had buddies that walked off of there, David, and were like, I'm not coming back, right? I mean, they were so pissed off. So, I mean, I mean, you made it kind of tough. You're coming right out of the abandoned project, right? I mean, it was right, right. No, I was no, no, no. It was a long time after. Long what was that time. five, six years though, right? No, no, ten years. Ten years. Okay. 
Well, yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. 10 years. Yep. Yeah. So Tether opened in 2008. I I moved here in 06, opened in 08, and I finished banding in 98. It opened in 99. So it was exactly 10 years. Boy, the time flies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, Tether was a, you know, I, I guess it was a kind of experiment that, we were building something that was had never been done in Central Oregon. Uh, the fairways are really, really wide. So, you know, the, the difficulty is the greens. The putting surfaces are very tricky. Uh, and the surrounds of the greens are even trickier. So I guess that would be a good example of a mulligan. If I had a mulligan at Tethero, I would dial back the greens from a nine to a seven and I would open up the surrounds of the greens that are fairly tight, and I would allow you to miss the greens by 15 to 50 feet and give you a chance to chip or bump or putt, you know, back onto the putting surface. So that that would be something that I learned from Tethero and took to other courses. Tee to green, I think the course is fine. To your point, one of my best friends at a competing resort who shall remain nameless says that, that is his favorite course in Central Oregon, and I'm coming back over there at the end of July, and I, I can't wait to get back on it because I like a challenge. So there you go. I mean, it depends on your frame of mind, right? I think the other problem is, you know, when you take a golfer away from the coast, away from Bandon Dunes, and you take them to Tethero, where the, the golf is the same, it's the same ground game, but now they're playing in shorts in a golf cart, somehow their mindset changes and they don't consider, you know, I play Tethero a few times a year and I go out with people that have never played it and they get a range finder out and they shoot the pin and I go, what are you doing? And they say, well, I'm shooting the pin. I'm like, that is the worst number on the in the world. Yeah. You don't need that number. Yeah. That number is going to screw you. I said, "What? just tell me what the front of the green is. And they're like, well, the pin's 180, but the pin's only at one, the front of the green's only at 150. That's your mark. That's your number. Yeah. That's yeah. your number. You hit it 150, but you need to hit that 150 with your 160 club. Yeah. Well, and, right? and, and you got to take the spin out of it. <laughs> so you need to hit a softer, slower swing speed that doesn't have that high arcing backspin trajectory and get that ball to release from the front of the green and use the contours. That is a challenging thing to do. Not a lot of golfers in the USA are used to doing that. They're used to saying it's 180, that's my five iron. And then they get up there and the ball's nowhere to be seen. And you're like, dude, you flew it all the way to the pin. It it went 30 yards over the green when it bounced. (laughs) And some of us have had to learn that the hard way, admittedly, David. So, I mean, you know, it's part of the it's part of the learning experience there. And it's amazing to see, you know, when you said 2008, I was thinking earlier than that. And I was thinking later for band. And I mean, the time, obviously, the older we get tends to compress itself a little bit. So it's remarkable. That was 2008. That was just 12, 13 years ago. And to see that course now from where it was when I was there, when it first opened and there was nobody there, there were maybe half a dozen homes on the course. And now the entire Bend area has exploded. You live there. It's been pretty amazing to see. Yeah, it's insane. I I think every law at Tethero has been complete. Most of them are completely built out now. So the, the project what are we now, 12 years later, has been you know a huge success, but it is on its third ownership. In that small 12 years, we went through the greatest recession in three generations. Uh, but the product itself uh, has been exceptionally uh, successful. 
Uh, the the members love the golf course. It's damn near full. Uh, you can't get tea time. All the houses are sold. So uh, the the project has been a success. So would I want a mulligan on the whole thing? No, it, it's no. a success. No, I, I agree. And I might be calling you in about three weeks to help get a tea time. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you just never know. Okay, yeah. so on to Gamble Sands. I'm kind of keeping this northwest while we're here because I've had... I've My been hunting there. grounds. I love that place. So two or three times now, Gamble is really getting the love it deserves from the national and the worldwide golf media. I've had two of my favorite rounds ever on that course. I hit a hole-in-one, my first and only hole-in-one on number four, uh, pitching wedge from, I think, what, what, I think we were way back that day, like 165, to your point, let it roll in, walked up there, could not find my ball, walked all the way around the perimeter, thought I lost it in the sagebrush until I walked across the green, and there that ball was in the cup. My first and only. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody with me. The people behind me saw it, but anyway, uh, that said, Gamble, I can't tell enough people to get up there, and not only do you have Gamble Sands, but now you have Quick Sands. I haven't played the short course yet. It was green and ready to go when I was there last fall, and I, I begged to get on it. They wouldn't let me, but I mean, Gamble, how proud are you of that track? I think Gamble is a I mean, we opened that six years ago. So uh, I was 45 when I built Gamble. I was 30 when I built Bandon. So 15 years of knowledge and experience and learning my art. Uh, I, I think that, you know, building Bandon was like my uh, post-grad project and Gamble Sands is my PhD, right? It's it's the sort of culmination of uh, uh, a, a childhood spent in and around golf, a young adulthood building Bandon and then trying to revisit Bandon and, and intellectually understand what I knew uh, through pure instinct and then taking it to a site like Gamble, which is a beautiful site, uh, and being able to pour all of that knowledge onto a property and know uh, when to push and when not to push, uh, when to be creative, when to have restraint. You know, these are all things that come with knowledge and experience that I probably didn't know so well in my mid-30s, but by my mid-40s, I didn't have that insecurity that restraint requires or or, or that re- restraint requires security. Yeah. And when you're insecure, it's very difficult to be restrained. Uh, and I, I think I see that in design of all sorts of people. You know, the, w- w- you, need, you need to be secure in your own skin and your own knowledge in order to exercise restraint. And I think very often with my small, young, ambitious team that I have around me now, you know, I'm kind of the old salt. And I, most often I'm bringing uh, restraint. Uh, I'm like, I, I hear you, dude. That's a great idea, but it's maybe just a little too far. You know, you, <laughs> you, you found the edge. You don't need to step over it. Trust me, you're there. Yeah, no, I mean, that, yeah, just, just a phenomenal course. And I mean, anybody listening <clears throat> to this who does not have that on their bucket list, put it on there. And, you know, it's only really a three, three and a half hour beautiful drive from Seattle. You can fly in and out of there nearby Brewster. I mean, that is amazing. The short course opened. Uh, I can't wait to get up and try that. And now I'm hearing about a third course there. Now, no one at Gamble would officially confirm that, but it sounds like you've already done some work on that. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, we've already laid it out. I, I even staked it uh, la, uh, two falls ago, uh, and we staked it all out. We had it planned, uh, and then we had a worldwide pandemic, and courses closed, and, you know, uh, we started come out of it last summer, and now we're in a golf boom. Uh, Gamble has no tea times, you know, or very few, no rooms available. So it's a tough spot. You know, we have huge demand. Uh, so the, the family are keen to build more lodging, another 18-hole golf course. Uh, I think there we're, there's some talk about starting work this winter and maybe starting to lay the foundations for construction of the next 18. So I think within the next two or three years, we'll see a, a third course and a second full 18 at Gamble on similarly good land. Uh, the land is just as good. Everybody keeps asking me, what will I do different? And I haven't quite figured that out yet. Uh, <laughs> I, I would like it to be different, not too different. Uh, I, I think people love what's there. So I don't want to go off uh, into left field just to be uh, pedantic. So I'd like to stay with the theme that, that Gamble has. I, I'd like it to be uh, sinuous. I'd like it to be flowing. I'd like the fairways to be large. Uh, but exactly how we uh, create the aesthetic and the strategy, I think that there's opportunity there to do things that are a little bit different. Maybe the greens will be a little smaller. Maybe the bunkering will be a little more intimate and abrupt. Uh, so I'm not quite sure how it will spin out. The fun thing is, I don't know, and the family are okay with that. And so are we. I'll say it again here. If you haven't been to Gamble Sands, you got to get there. Like Bandon, it's not easy, but it's well worth it. A scenic three-hour drive out of Seattle, maybe two hours out of Spokane. If you've got a plane, there's an airstrip right there in Brewster, and it's a 10-minute shuttle up to the course. Play a matinee, then play the next morning. And obviously, with quicksands open, that is a must as well. Now, in part two of our conversation, we'll talk Mammoth Dunes, Nenea, Macrahanish, and David shares the favorite course he's designed and built that you've probably never heard of. Next time on Slice... Breakfast balls are served all day long. We got you covered. Thanks for downloading Slice with Brian Bushlack, presented by True Spec Golf. Our loyal listeners get 50% off their custom club fitting experience with the promo code SLICE50. Visit TrueSpecGolf.com and click on Book Now. Thanks for downloading Slice, a presentation of Feedback Media, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Full disclosure, our legal department doesn't allow mulligans.